Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Her story, in my mind, is sort of a two steps forward, one step back, because for me, that's a more accurate representation of how we actually grow. The five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression. Very comforting to know that it all ends in acceptance, except for the fact that it can be a load of old nonsense. The five stages don't exist. At least they can come at different times. You might skip a step or repeat a few or get stuck. And acceptance, well, that can come and go as well. So when we're developing our characters, we shouldn't see adversity as something to overcome with a single solution. To create compelling and authentic characters, often messiness is the key. One woman who is well and truly put through the ringer on her own rocky journey is the character of Victoria Nash, the protagonist of the debut novel Go as a River. I am delighted to say that the book's author, Shelley Reed, is my guest today. Chapter 1, Into the Wilderness. Victoria Nash is just a teenager in the 1940s, but she runs the household on her family's peach farm in the ranch town of Iola, Colorado, the sole surviving female in a family of very troubled men. Wilson Moon is a young drifter with a mysterious past, displaced from his tribal land in the Four Corners region. When Victoria encounters Will on a street corner, their unexpected connection ignites as much passion as danger and as many revelations as secrets. Victoria flees into the beautiful but harsh wilderness of the nearby mountains when tragedy strikes. Living in a small hut, she struggles to survive in the unforgiving conditions with no clear notion of what her future will be. What happens afterward is her quest to regain all that she has lost, even as the Gunnison River rises to submerge her homeland and the only life she has ever known. Shelley has walked the land that she's talking about in this book, and these settings have a very special place in her heart. So that's where our conversation begins. I'm actually thrilled to start by talking about the setting, because as you mentioned, the setting is something that I hold deeply in my heart, and I love it so much. The novel is set in the Gunnison Valley, which is the Gunnison River Valley on the western slope of the Colorado Rockies. And it's where I've lived my entire adult life and where I've loved and connected with this land since I was a child. This valley, it's almost hard to describe how exquisite it is. Gunnison County is an enormous county on the western slope of Colorado, and it's 90% public lands. So between Bureau of Land Management land, National Forest land, and wilderness areas, 90% of the land in this area is well cared for. It's very wild. It's open for public hiking and biking and climbing and all of the things that we do here in the valley. And I've taken full advantage of that my entire life. And I am the happiest I ever am. I'm the most settled when I am out in the wilderness in a wild landscape. Really, the higher in elevation, the better. I live every day of my life at 9,000 feet elevation. I I really need to look up how many meters that is (laughs) for my European interviews. It's it's high. It's it's very high. 
an elevation. And like I said, with a lot of wilderness around me. And the more that I can immerse in those landscapes, the more that I can settle my mind, my spirit, challenge my body to climb these mountains. It really is the place that life makes most sense to me. So I've studied it very, very carefully. I've observed it. I've written about it really my entire life. And so the novel being said in the Gunnison Valley just became, it came to me very, very naturally. And that aspect the descriptions of the natural world, the placing of my main character, Victoria Nash, in a wild landscape, in order to learn the lessons, in order to be humbled by that landscape, that actually was the easiest part of this novel for me to write. It came to me very naturally to include my connection with that world. So I'm really glad that it stood out to you. And I I thank you for starting in that place. Well, in a novel of enjoyable things to write about, it was one of the most enjoyable things to read because your connection with the wilderness and the landscape comes screaming through, you know, almost as if it's Charles Dickens writing about London because it's so much part of of this particular story that I, I got a sense that I was in the hands of a writer who has walked, swam, hiked, cycled. Yeah. Everything, every aspect of this particular landscape. And not in a not in a research way, but in a lifelong passion sort yeah, of way. And absolutely. I, I also should mention that I'm a fifth generation Coloradoan. So I have generationally, you know, this landscape is sort of generationally in my bones and in my cells as well. And that comes flooding through. And and let's stay on the notion of generations then, because This is a novel that takes place over an extended period of time. We are in the hands of a character called Victoria, who is perhaps old and experienced beyond her years and beyond the extent to which we should really expect a human being to have experienced. She's experienced a great deal of loss of sadness. She has inherited a role that has been imposed upon her by the environment that she inhabits, the decade in which she exists. And we can dive into that. But you, as I've said on this show many, many times, do the one thing that I think writers must do, which is take the character you care the most about and rinse them emotionally (laughs) through the ringer. Because this girl goes through everything but even when we first meet her she's lived a difficult life that life gets more difficult before it gets better and then it gets worse but she's a product of her age isn't she yes so the novel opens in 1948 in rural colorado and i think the reality for a young girl she's 17 years old in 1948 when the novel opens she's very naive to many many things the ways of the world. She's very naive to certainly her own place in the world outside of the way in which it's been defined for her by the men in her life, by her society at the time. We also learn right away in the book that Victoria has lost some essential family members, her aunt and her cousin, but I think most essentially her mother. And so she's growing up in a house full of men with no female to pattern off of. She was expected to step directly into the role that her mother played as housekeeper and caretaker of the family when she was only 12 years old when her mother passed. And so we meet Victoria in 1948, already very confined by these limitations and a lack of understanding of herself. And the entire rest of the novel is Victoria learning who she is, learning how to 
dig deeply into her own strength and her own resilience, learning how to meet the challenges and the difficult decisions that she has to make. And really her story in my mind is sort of a two steps forward, one step back kind of a journey. Because for me, that's a more accurate representation of how we actually grow and how we actually become ourselves. It's not that we face one major challenge in our life and suddenly we are these wise and capable people. I find that we learn and grow incrementally with each challenge and with each difficulty that we have to face. And you know, you're right about the fact that Victoria does have to face several very challenging points, very challenging losses, very challenging moments in her life where she has to decide how she's going to respond. And a lot of that comes from a fascination that I have with how people carry, how people bear the seemingly unbearable. And yet we do, we find a way to move forward. And that really is Victoria's journey throughout the course of the novel, discovering what she's capable of. And in that way, I came to really love this young woman (laughs) and really love what she represents about human strength. She does. She is an extended exercise in enduring adversity, isn't she, over a really long period of time. And I'm so... I'm so delighted to hear you talk about two steps forward, one step back, because you you do get that. Every time I thought she was getting there and I was cheering for her, she has this crisis of confidence. She takes this step back. And initially I, I was, come on, Tori, we need you to do this. And I was like, no, she's being entirely authentic because to be honest, I would probably have run a mile at this point, whereas actually she's gone, she's much braver than I am, but you made her real. I, I really admired the restraints in your writing at this point, because you could have done it differently. She could have gotten to the end game in a very different manner, in a very different way, much quicker, much happier, but actually that's not real life, is it? Yes, right. I agree with you on that. I really do. And it was very important to me that I kept a sense of hope in that strength that she develops. I turn the novel toward hope. It couldn't be just relentlessly difficult, but I found that a lot of the hope had to lie in that deeper discovery, that authentic discovery, as you say, of how strong and resilient a human actually can be when they're called upon to be so. So, I hope that the novel can be inspiring to all readers in that way, because quite frankly, we all carry grief. We all face challenges. We all have to step into difficult decisions and not know whether or not we made the right choices. And it is something that I think every human carries either in a profound way or in a lighter way, but it's inescapable in the human journey that we must face these losses and these choices. And so I hope that Victoria can be for readers an inspiration of what we all are capable of. And as I said, you know, I think that there's plenty in her life that she does turn to for solace and for love, primarily in the natural world and in the land and in her peach farm, but also not escaping the burdens of just the journey of becoming who she becomes by the end of the book. We'll talk about the writing process later on, because I do want to dig into that, because I think the audience will be fascinated by how you approach this, but not for the first time in the last 18 months of this show. We've been on air now for three years, and I'd never heard of generational trauma until about 18 months ago. And since then, it has come up repeatedly. This is a family that has been 
living with generational trauma. As you say, we start in 1948. We go through. I, th- I think we're. At, I think we're somewhere in 1970. By the you know by by the time that we finish this this accident that claims the lives of really important people in this family. This is not a short-lived thing. This has very, very long, deep and loud echoes throughout this family. We see male members of the family incapable of existing without the matriarch and then Tori is, is, you know, is almost, she's not even asked, she's made to step in and fulfill this particular role. But trauma that lives through generations comes screaming through this book. And I am fascinated by it and the extent to which it impacts human beings, because it does have an impact on the reader. As I think I mentioned to you in in my notes, it made me reflect on actually, whilst I have had trauma and hardship and grief in my life, I am extremely grateful for how happy my life has been. And it did make me reflect on that. But for, for every person like me, there are 10 people like Victoria, aren't they? I have so much to say about that because that gratitude, I think, is an essential part of of every life because, you know, there's so much to be grateful for, often even within challenge and circumstance. Again, because I feel that challenge and difficult circumstances are unavoidable. Grief is unavoidable. Loss is unavoidable. We have to be able to carry both, to carry both gratitude and hope, as well as our losses and our and our fears and our and our challenges and our grief. We have to be able to carry both to be whole human beings and to understand that that is part of the complex journey of being a human being. And so I love that um, that was one of your responses to reading the book is is to say, yes, I also carry grief. And yes, I've had to step into that space and be strong within that sorrow. But I also am very grateful for all of the gifts of my life. You know, Victoria feels the same way eventually as she becomes more able to look at her life and the blessings that she does have. She does have to work very hard to try to reclaim at least some of what she's lost. But back to the idea of generational trauma, you know, it's interesting because really what informed my writing of this book more than anything was a sense of generational strength. My ancestors were homesteaders in Colorado in the latter part of the 19th century. And the stories, my grandfather was a wonderful storyteller. And so I inherited those stories of my great-great-grandparents homesteading on the Northeastern Plains and the Southeastern Plains of Colorado. I've witnessed in my family members, I was very close to my great-grandparents, my grandparents, my mother and father, my brothers. I've witnessed in my ancestors, this deep sort of resilience, this ability to just get up every day, work really hard, do what needs to be done, carry the burdens of life, and be able to move forward. And I found so much strength in my own journey and my own life through those ancestors. And I tried to channel a lot of that into this story. So whereas there is generational sorrow and grief, that Victoria carries, that all of her family members carry, certainly the character of Wilson Moon carries, which we can talk about. I also tried to find in that what we inherit through generations is a tremendous amount of strength and the ability to move forward. That has certainly been true in my own life. And so I hope both of those inform the story in the way that it comes through for the reader. 
Chapter 2, Displacement. As a Native American, Wilson Moon is not an easy character to write for somebody not from that world. In the hands of a less capable, less experienced writer, he could have felt like a plot device or a stereotype. But in Go as a River, he is drawn so beautifully. Not simply a love interest for Victoria, but a representation of the hostility that was met by people like him at the time. He's a character first and foremost, and very much not a trope. And to me, this is a masterclass in representation, one of the easiest things to get wrong. So what can we learn from Shelley's approach to writing Wilson? Thank you so much for that, because I have to say, you know, I said earlier, the writing of The Wilderness was the easiest part of this book for me to write. Wilson Moon's character was the most difficult part of this book for me to write, and entirely for the reasons that you're saying. I was so careful to be as respectful as I possibly could be in creating Wilson Moon's character. Once this book started taking the turn toward being thematically very much about place and displacement, I knew I could not write a book about displacement in the Gunnison Valley in the American West in general without including the indigenous experience in some way. Because as painful as the displacement of the people of Iola from their ancestral land, who are predominantly white farmers and ranchers, well before that was the incredibly horrific and painful displacement of the indigenous people of the Gunnison Valley, primarily the Ute people. But Wilson Moon, as you say, is representative of that story, that I couldn't leave that story out. And yet on another level, I didn't feel that Wilson Moon's story was entirely my story to tell. And so much of the the cultural and physical genocide against the against the indigenous people in the United States was a stealing of their narratives, a stealing of their stories, a redefining who they were in order to manipulate and, and control that narrative. And so I've stepped into developing the character of Wilson Moon, very aware of that history and very committed to wanting to represent him as respectfully and accurately as I possibly could. And so I did it primarily through Victoria's lens. We as readers learn about Wilson Moon through Victoria's lens, which keeps him necessarily a little bit mysterious. We don't entirely hear everything about his backstory. I allude a little bit to the fact that he is a child of displacement. He is a drifter. He is someone who does not have the sense of place that Victoria has, primarily because generationally he was denied that sense of place. We learn at some point that he, you know, in brief mention that he had been a victim of one of the horrific Indian boarding schools, as they were called, that were common in the United States in the the 19th and actually well into the 20th century where Native American children were literally stolen off the reservations from their families and placed into these horrific boarding schools that were essentially there to sort of train them into becoming, you know, basically good little white children. From what I've studied and what I've learned, it's children that came out of those those boarding schools, or I allude that Wilson Moon escaped from one, they kind of become children of nowhere because they're in some ways too quote unquote, white to return to the reservation, to indigenous to fit into a conventional white world. And so Wilson Moon is very representative of 
the displaced person who cannot find a home, cannot find a place to be. And I contrast that against Victoria within the first pages of the book of someone who's so rooted in place, so rooted in landscape, so rooted in family that she can't imagine being a drifter. And yet Wilson Moon has been forced to be a drifter. They're two contrasting characters of displacement, Wilson Moon and Victoria Nash. You know, in many ways, their meeting is a love story. But it ultimately, I wanted it to be so much deeper and so much tr more transcendent of a typical love story, so much more vast of what a love story can be. And so, you know, they're two symbols of displacement, but also I wanted Wilson Moon and Victoria to be two characters who were transcendent of those cultural biases that you mentioned that are so typically inherited throughout families, throughout generations, the way in which we see otherness, the way in which we perceive someone who is culturally different than our own selves. Will and Victoria are able to just come together human heart to human heart, transcendent of those prejudices, transcendent of those biases. And I really wanted to allow them to do that in order to say that that is absolutely possible. And unfortunately, not everybody in, in the story can be transcendent of those prejudices. And it plays out very tragically for Wilson Moon. I didn't want to shy away from the pain and the horrors of racism, especially of that era. And thus, that's the way that I allowed this uh, meeting between Victoria and Will to, to play out. Wilson feels like a character that Taylor Sheridan would write in a screenplay in either Yellowstone or Wind River or, or any of the stories that you talk about in terms of victims of institutional racism that occur in the US, in Canada, or in Australia. To me, I go one step further. He is the living embodiment of the river and the valley and the wilderness because he gives her that gift, doesn't he? It's the title of your book. He gives her that gift, that brilliant, wonderful piece of heart-affirming advice, which is go as a river. He is essentially the human embodiment of the, Gun the Gunnison River. At least that's how he appeared to me. And I love that. And as quickly as you bring him into our lives and as tragically as you take him out of our lives, he lives on in her and in the wilderness, doesn't he? Oh, thank you for that. Yes. So whereas Wilson Moon is a drifter, Wilson Moon carries a wisdom about landscape, a wisdom about place, a wisdom about how to move forward that Victoria simply doesn't have at the beginning of the book. And when Will tells her, I will go as a river, that's the only way, she sort of nods and pretends that she knows what that means. But it is not until really the end of the book where Victoria actually says, you know, I've tried to go as a river, but I've only recently understood what that means. And like you said, that's, that's into the 1970s. And so really the journey of the entire book is Victoria learning? What does it mean to go as a river? Something Wilson Moon knows as a young man, partially because of that ancestral generational trauma that you mentioned earlier, partly because of his heritage and the way in which indigenous people carry the land in themselves, in their being and in their sacred sense of, of self and of existence that other cultures struggle a little bit more to understand. And so, yeah, the, the guiding frame of the entire book is when Wilson Moon tells Victoria that it's possible to go as a river. She has to decide and discover what that means. 
Chapter 3 How It Came Together. I think it's time now to discuss the art and craft of writing. From characters that surprised her to characters she cut, there's so much to learn and to take away from Shelley's approach that I'd love to share it with you. As you know by now, I talk to a lot of writers. I read a lot of books. So call it a hunch. But I got the sense that this story hadn't always been solely Victoria's, that her presence became bigger throughout the writing process, because this book could have been done very differently. I love that you perceived that. I saw that earlier in your notes and I thought, wow, how did he know? So well done. <laughs> I will say two things about that. One, yes, it was always Victoria's story. However, there's a big however. Structurally, I revised this book many times. I'm a big reviser for the writers out there. This book was a long time in coming. We can talk about process here in a moment, but I am a big reviser. I'm a big believer in doing your best, stepping away from it, coming back to it with fresh eyes, looking very carefully at what is working, what is not working. And I knew intuitively there was something that was not quite working with the structure. The very, very first draft of this book years ago was the interwoven story of three women. And I came in and out of those narratives all the way through. So we would be with Victoria, but then we'd be pulled out of that in order to hear another character who, who I cut out completely. And also Inga's story, which we actually do get to in the end of this book. But I had it woven all the way through. Structurally, I decided at some point that Victoria's story was really rising to the top. It really was the most important of the three narratives. And I figured out that those the other two narratives were really in service of Victoria's story. Once I figured that out and was able to focus primarily on Victoria's story and then bring in other characters that authentically bolstered Victoria's story, then I was able to reimagine the structure of the book, get rid of one of those female voices completely, move Inga's narrative towards later in the book when the reader, I think, was craving the information that Inga is able to deliver and focus entirely on Victoria's story so that the reader was not pulled in and out of her narrative, was actually able to just stick with her all the way through. Once I figured out that that was the right structure for this book, oh, that really, um, it, it changed everything for this book and my confidence in where I was going. But yes, to answer your question and to speak to the to the writers, I had to play with that for quite a while. And I had to really be super honest with myself of what needed to stay and what needed to go in order to tell Victoria's story to the absolute best of my ability. And from there forward, that became my entire goal <laughs> of the book, of the writing of this book, was I came to love Victoria Nash so much that I had one goal and one goal only and that was to tell her story to the best of my ability that is fascinating that's amazing and well done for sticking at it because it wouldn't be the book it is I think had you done that differently but I often find Shelley in writing in in any format that some of my personal favorite characters and moments come quite late on in the writing process when they almost walk onto the page as the answer fully formed that you didn't know you needed in the first place. Do you, are there any characters in this book that came to you quite late? Yes, there is. Zelda, the character of Zelda. Oh, um, wow. Was, really? Uh-huh. Was actually in my final draft. And I'm talking wow. many, many drafts. Zelda 
She's amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I agree. I love Zelda so much. And she's such an important catalyst towards the end of the book. Such an important friend for Victoria. She's her first friend, you know, other than the trees, other than the, the land. Victoria is a very solitary character in so many ways. She connects, but she connects with wild things. Zelda is really her first friend. You know, when I mentioned that I originally had three women interwoven in this book, the character that I removed completely, and that's a painful thing to do, you know, part of being a writer is some of the lines that you love, some of the characters you love, some of the passages you love, sometimes they just simply have to go. <laughs> and it's it's difficult, but it is necessary. I brought in a lot of the characteristics that were needed for the story that had been in that previous character that I got rid of. I put a lot of those into the character of Zelda, but she is a more modern woman. She's a sassier woman. She's a more confident woman than the previous character was. She is someone who can carry grief and loss without the guilt, without the burden, I think, that Victoria carries. She offers Victoria kind of another another vision of how a woman can walk in the world. And in that way, I really love her and she's really essential. But I have to say, I brought her in, in my, basically, I think my final draft of the book. It's and, astonishing um, how often that sort of character presents him or herself at the perfect moment, almost as if they walk onto the page and say, Shelley, I've been here all along. Why could you not <laughs> see it? Why could you not see I was the answer to this structural problem? Oh, it's true. I think that's exactly how she came about because she she asserted herself in my imagination with such authority, <laughs> such like, hey, here I am, put me here. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm listening. And that, you know, for the writers who are listening, that really is in whatever form it takes when you know you're fully in the groove as a writer with a particular narrative is when the characters start making their own decisions in a way. When you're writing away and you think, oh, wow wow, I didn't know that was going to happen. Oh, Victoria, well done. Or whatever it is, you know, once the narrative or the characters or a certain plot twist or something takes over and it's sort of just coming from a deeper place other than your own sort of will and logic, that's when you're really in the groove of the book. And oh, is that just such a joyous moment? <laughs> a few episodes ago, I was in conversation with a writer called Georgina Moore, who's written a, an amazing book called The Garnet Girls. And, and she has a, a number of hats, but one is before her first novel, which is The Garnet Girls, she was a, a book publicist. And she said she would hear writers at, at press launches and at book launches and, at, and events say very similar things to what you've just said and go, you're making this up. This isn't real. This doesn't happen. And then it was only when she started to write that she yeah. realized that everything you've just said is 100% true. Yeah. When you're lucky, when you're not lucky. For me, when I'm in that groove, it's glorious. When I'm not in that groove, but I'm needing to move forward, I can write and rewrite and rewrite one sentence 20 times. You know, words matter to me. Language matters to me. The rhythm of a sentence matters to me. I work hard on my sentences. I, I'm a great lover of poetry. I, I probably attend to individual sentences and revise individual sentences with more focus than maybe is necessary. But sometimes writing is it's kind of agonizing for me, honestly. And other times it's glorious and fun and um, and in that groove that we're speaking of. So I think writers have to be prepared for both experiences and just hope for the best and know that it's all part of 
part of this mysterious thing we call the creative process. I, I And on the mysterious thing, I do think that the worst thing that can happen to a human being in terms of creativity is waking up one morning and saying, I want to be a writer because you <laughs> sign up for everything you've just said. For all the Zeldas, there are a million train yeah. wrecks and problems that you've got. Um, yeah. I know that this book is about to find its way out into the wild in the UK and in Europe. By the time this episode airs, it will have been out for a while. You'd have done a whole bunch of press. Dare I ask what's next for you as a writer, Shelley? Yes. Well, I am working on a second novel and I'm actually really excited to get going on it. Currently, I'm so, uh, you know, the uh, Go as a River has been fairly recently released in the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. I've been doing a lot of publicity with that. I've been on a book tour and I am, as you're saying, just about to head to the UK and to for a, a European tour. All so exciting, but all very much the opposite side of my brain <laughs> that I need to be using to write, you know. And so I I am engaged in writing a second novel. At this point, I am just learning who these characters are. Character and place, I have found, are really my most important elements to what matters to me most in a narrative that I would engage in. And so I really need to learn the characters, need to get to know them, and I really need to know the place. This next novel that I'm working on is set in Colorado as well, but it's set in a very different part of Colorado, more in the southeastern corner where my ancestors homesteaded. It's not an aspect, an area of Colorado that I know as well. So I'm having to do more research and more just like conscious being in that landscape, walking that landscape with my observant mind, tapping into some of those ancestors and what they experienced in that landscape. I do want to tap in some early female mountaineering. I, I'm a mountaineer myself. I climb a lot of mountains and I'm really fascinated by how women first started climbing mountains in Colorado. There'll be an element of that, an element of the immigration experience. And so I'm currently more in the investigative stage of learning who these people are and what their time period was. But yes, it will get written eventually. And I hope by the time that this airs that I'm well into the writing of it. Currently, I'm sort of just dancing with it, I feel. <laughs> well, at some point, you'll have to commit, you know that. And, and yeah. these characters will tell you if you push them to do things they don't want to do. Go as a River, whenever you're listening to this, is out now. It is a masterclass in a description of a wilderness, of happenstance, of generations, generational trauma, of love, loss, grief and endurance. Shelley Reed, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Mark, what a pleasure to talk with you. You're such a careful reader. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Shelley Reed for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learned? For all the exotic locations you can write about, sometimes the most powerful setting for your story will be the one that's closest to your heart. Knowledge and passion for a place will always come screaming through. People rarely walk a clear path out of adversity. Portray your character's struggles authentically, but charting a rocky path to the endgame, one where they sometimes take two steps forward and one step back. And finally, don't be afraid to push some characters down in the order of importance, or even lose their stories completely. Shelley realised that Victoria's story was the most important to tell, and she pivoted. I'm glad she did. 
Let the writing process guide you. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list for the events, which are titled Inside Stories, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 